All right, well, good morning, everyone. We are going to continue our Sunday School series through the 1689. Today we're going to go over chapter 23 of Lawful Oaths and Vows. So has anyone really, uh, other than me just mentioning that five seconds ago, has anybody really ever considered oaths and vows? Wesley, you have. All right, a few of you guys. So... Oaths, yeah, not oaths and boats and stuff. It's oaths and vows. So who, can anyone give me a kind of modern-day example of an oath? Uh, death till I die or something, or death till we part. Do so we part? Yeah. marriage vows, yeah. Well, everybody so, who's been in the military had to swear something. Yeah. Vow to protect the country. There you go. What other oaths or vows do we know in modern day? Okay. Tell the truth. Yep. Presidential. Yep. That's right. The swearing when the president's sworn in. It happens with Congress as well. What about for doctors? Hippocratic. Yeah. There's the Hippocratic oath, right? And we've got the wedding vows. So modern day vows, we typically think of those uh, for weddings. And it's funny when you Google what are modern day vows, that's all you get. There is like pages upon pages upon pages of write your own vows and all that kind of stuff. It's really funny. But uh, we also know, and and we're going to hear this from the 1689, about Catholic vows, right? Does anybody know what some of those Catholic vows are? Celibacy. Celibacy. What else? What about the monks sometimes? Them, them, they got that. Uh huh. Silence. Silence. Yep. Yep. And and poverty, right? So there's lots of different kinds of uh, oaths and vows that even exist today. Um, but what? Who can tell me what the difference is between an oath and a vow? I don't think Jason wants to repeat what he said for some reason. He said, I hope you try a little harder. Ah, okay. So you try, there's a little more, a little more oomph behind the oath. Okay. Well, we'll get to that here in a few minutes, but we're going to go ahead and read through the five paragraphs of chapter 23. So, as usual, would you guys participate and help me out by reading each paragraph? Who's got paragraph one for me? It's printed there on your sheet. Mike, paragraph two. Emma, Larry, paragraph three. Justin, paragraph four. Who, I got paragraph five. I got paragraph five. All right. There we go. We'll round it out there with the holes on the end. All right. Paragraph one. A lawful oath is a part of a religious worship wherein the person is wearing the truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calleth God to witness what he swears, and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. Paragraph 2. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet as in matters of weight and moment, for confirmation of truth and ending all strife, an oath is warranted by the word of God. So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. 
Whosoever taketh an oath warranted by the word of God ought duly to consider the weightiest of so solemn an act, and therein to avouse nothing but what he knoweth to be true, for that by rash, false, and false and vain oaths the Lord is provoked, and for them this land mourns. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the word, in other words, without equivocation or mental reservation. A vow, which is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. The popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. Fantastic. All right, so... Before we dive into the paragraphs in, in chapter 23, um, I thought it might be helpful for us to go through some background information on uh, oaths and vows. And so, first off, let's define what is an oath or a vow. So, on your handout, you've got a lot of writing to do. There's a big old uh, empty blank for you. And it's not a gigantic word like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. But it's actually a definition of oath. An oath is a solemn declaration of truth to be affirmed by the one taking it. An oath is a solemn declaration of truth to be affirmed by the one taking it. I'll repeat it one more time. A solemn declaration of truth to be affirmed by the one taking it taking it. So we see that oaths are made before both God and man, and that oaths are meant to confirm truth. So this is, oaths simply are, like what we see in the Bible, those promises or the solemn declaration that we, that what will be done will be done, and that we call God as our witness to that fact. So this is a made between God and men. It's meant to confirm truth. But a vow, on the other hand, isn't lesser, unfortunately, as, as Jason would say. It's actually a solemn promise that some action or function will be performed. A vow is a solemn promise that some action or function will be performed. I'll say it again. A vow is a solemn promise that some action or function will be performed. So biblically, a vow is made to God alone. So we talked about wedding vows earlier. Does this for anyone change here change the 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 way you think about marriage vows? If a vow is something that is meant to be uh, between God or or be be made to God alone, how does how do we typically? I, and I, when I say we, I say I mean our culture. Look at wedding vows. Yeah. Right. And and who are they making the vow to? Each other. Yeah. So you see that, like in some of the, uh, maybe even some of the own unique 
or, or you know, you created your own vows or something, sometimes, and I'm not knocking those at all, but sometimes you see that people will put in there that they'll make you continue to make you your favorite chicken and dumpling recipe for the rest of your life type of thing. They'll put something kind of comical in there, meant to be somewhat cute, but it's not a vow to each other, right? These are vows before God, right? These are made to God alone. So vows are made to confirm action. So that's kind of the big difference between vows and oaths. That, and the, the, the key word being for vows, that they, these are meant towards action. These are, meant, these are before God alone. They're meant to action. Oaths, on the other hand, are, are more of a confirmation or declaration of truth before, between God and man. God is our witness. So at the time uh, of this, uh, of the 1689 and even uh, before that, um, there were, uh, there were a group called, they were called the Radicals or, or the, the Anabaptists. Uh, they, uh, when, the, when the early church started with the Book of Acts and then through uh, the early church fathers and things like that, they were for the most part one. They would call upon the apostles to adjudicate on issues of theology and, and, and doctrinal issues. And for the most part, that continued for a good amount of years. Uh, but then sometime around you know, the 200s or so, the, uh, the churches started to, uh, some churches started to form a more hierarchical structure, try to be a little bit more um, centralized and, and organized in that way. Um, when they started to do this, they were coming, this was the beginnings and the early beginnings of the church in Rome, the Catholic church in Rome, the Roman Catholic church. And what, the, what I said was that there were some of the churches. There were other churches who did not want to submit to the hierarchical structure, structure of Rome, and they were known as Puritans. Uh, I'm sorry, not Puritans. Uh, Puritans, that's what I mean. They were known as the Puritan churches uh, in those early days. And some of you may know in the Catholic Church, in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, they would hold councils in this, this uh, town called Carthage, which is in Africa. In, these, uh, in, these, in this city and in these councils or synods of Carthage, this is where the Roman Catholic Church would canonize a lot of different things. Uh, and it was in the fifth, sometime in the, I think it was in the 3rd century or so, um, oh, 5th century, I think. Sorry, they, they officially uh, canonized the practice of infant baptism. It was, it was during that, that the, and it was, that was one of the areas where the Puritan church uh, did not agree with them. They, they, they held to believers' baptism, and so they did, not, uh, they did not want to continue with infant baptism at that time and hold to it. At that time, then, also, the Catholic church started to persecute these Puritan churches because they did not do this, and they started calling them names. And one of those names was Anabaptists. Uh, they, they called them Anabaptists because that, to, the definition of that is rebaptized. Uh, so there in your notes on the, the blank there, Anabaptists is rebaptized. So when they were persecuting them and calling them this, uh, they, <clears throat> they were saying that they were rebaptized uh, because they, the, many people had already been baptized as, as babies. They were then baptizing them as believers, and so that's why they were calling them that. Eventually, though, during the Reformation, um, when uh, things were changing and the Puritan churches uh, started, to, uh, to started to be reformed as well, they started to hear more towards uh, being called Baptists. Um, some of them did. 
but some remained Anabaptists at that time. And though they were formed, they still uh, held to Anabaptist beliefs, and they, um, uh, those, some of those have splintered off now. You don't really hear a lot of that now, uh, churches being called like the First Church, First Anabaptist Church of Weatherford. But the Mennonites and the Amish and some others are splinters from the Anabaptist period. One hallmark of the Anabaptist beliefs is their refusal, so this is going back to your notes, their refusal to take legally binding oaths and vows, and thus they see themselves as separate communities from society at large. So they, they're... Uh, their refusal to take legally binding oaths and vows, and they see themselves as separate communities from society at large. And the 1689 authors, um, as Waldron suggests uh, here in the passages, or the paragraphs we read, they may have been sympathetic to their Anabaptist brothers um, because the confession seems to soften the language a little bit from what the Westminster and even the Savoy had. The Westminster has in there, there's actually, I think, seven paragraphs for uh, chapter 23 in the Westminster. And uh, in there, they, do, they are pretty strong in their language that it is a sin not to take a lawful oath or vow. So that language was removed. Um, Waldron was say, saying maybe just to be sympathetic, but it is still very clear that the 1689 authors uh, take the stance of the Reformed churches that lawful oaths and vows may be taken. So just a little bit of background, a little bit of flavor for uh, our paragraphs today. So let's dive now into oaths. And oaths, as we see uh, pretty clearly in chapter 23, are handled through paragraphs 1 through 4. So let's look at some scriptural examples of what oaths we may see in the Bible. So would somebody read Deuteronomy 6.13? And then somebody else, Hebrews 6. And then somebody else, Matthew 26. I got 613. Okay. Ronnie, you said? Um, 613 through 17. And somebody, Matthew 26, 62 through 64. All right. Thank you, sir. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Thank you. Hebrews 6, 13 through 17, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater, no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will most certainly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Thanks, Jason. All right, thanks, guys. So here we, he, we see that, that God in Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we are to call upon him in our oaths. Hebrews 6 is that example for, where God had made an oath before, uh, with uh, uh, calling upon himself uh, with, with uh, Abraham. And then Matthew 26, Christ is under oath with the high priest. 
In the 1689, I wanted to call out a few things uh, from paragraphs 1 through 4 that, uh, about the lawfulness of oaths, that oaths are worship and they're rev- to be reverential, and that they should be in plain and simple language. So going back to the lawfulness of oath, the implication here is that there are unlawful oaths, which is the purpose of why the confession uses the term lawful. So there are times where uh, taking an oath is unlawful. But there are times where there is these can be lawful. Thus, the authors of the confession were going against what the Anabaptists condemned. The Anabaptists, like the Anabaptists, like I mentioned before, removed themselves from society and condemned any use of oath imposed by civic authorities. So that we do see that oaths can be lawful, and Deuteronomy six is is one of those key texts for us where we can see that. Uh, that oaths are, are able to be lawful if we use them in the right way. Worship is another consideration that we have. And the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7, we'll, let's go there real quick. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Deuteronomy 5 is this, you know, the, the same verse, basically, uh, the same third commandment there. But we see here that in, uh, these, in the Decalogue, as we know, especially here in these first four commandments, we're talking about the worship of our God. The worship of our God is, and is, is that God's name is not to be taken in vain. And so there are instances where God's name is used that, is, uh, that can be and will be taken in vain. So we know that there is an opportunity that or we do have the, the ability or, or whatever, however you want to say it to, uh, to use God's name in a worshipful manner. So when we do take lawful oaths, these are opportunities for us to be able to worship God because we're calling upon his name. Thirdly, I want us to see also from the, the confession and in scripture that it is a reverential thing for us to be doing when we take lawful oaths. These are, and they're reverential because, again, kind of going back to the third commandment, we're taking these in God's name only. There is no other thing, no other person, no, nothing else that we should be doing or, or taking our oaths uh, and calling upon somebody else. We don't call upon a city. We don't call upon a church. We don't call upon any other false god or anything else. We call upon God alone. That's what, that's, that is what God has instructed us in his scripture, that oaths are to be taken through him, uh, and we do that uh, to honor him. And it's sinful to do otherwise or rashly. Somebody, would somebody read Jeremiah 5, verse 7? How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no God. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and truth to the houses of poor. Yeah, so here in this example, we see that God will not pardon them. They have taken oaths by other things other than him. And so God is, is calling them out for the sin that they have committed. But it is, so it is okay to take oaths in weighty matters. We don't just take oaths willy-nilly. We don't take oaths for common things. We don't take oaths for things that, that, 
that ha that do that aren't weighty. Uh, we, these should be things that we should take very seriously. They should be things that we should take with uh, with care, with reverence, and knowing that this is using God's name as our as witness. So matters of law, for instance, we talked about earlier, an oath in a court of law is something that we would do, um, or that we can do, and we know that when we do that, that even though our society may have a particular view of that, uh, and they may not speak truth, as Christians we know that when we're taking this oath before a court of law under God's name, then we are to be representing him truthfully and honestly. So, take it seriously. Your next blank. Take it seriously. We're, take oaths under and by the name of God, his name that reflects his character and nature. Thus, we shouldn't do so flippantly or carelessly, but only when necessary. And the 1689 also calls out that we should be doing this in plain and simple language. We have to understand what we're taking an oath for, right? So using plain and simple language is, thankfully, a, a, a very, very wise uh, thing to do because, again, these are very serious. We're taking God's name uh, and... Uh, these should be done in reverence, so using plain and simple language is, is a very good, uh, wise thing to do when taking oaths. So the goal of an oath. The writer of Hebrews describes the most basic function of an oath. It's a holy promise given as an end of every dispute. The word for dispute in the Greek indicates a contrary word, an argument. The goal of an oath, then, is to restrain the evil of men by preventing disputes from expanding out of control. But wait, Didn't, don't we, haven't we heard Christ say something on this matter? That in Matthew 5, someone may say, like the Anabaptists, uh, something ain't right. Hold up. You know, what's going on here? Something ain't right. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that, that we shouldn't, we, he say, doesn't he say in there that simply our yes should be yes and our no should be no? James 5.12 says something very similar to, um, which, which takes the words from Christ. So what, what, if, if Christ says that we should just simply let our yes be yes and our no be no in Matthew 5, what, uh, how do we then reconcile the, the, use, the lawful use of oaths and vows? So why don't we just go to Matthew 5 and read that real quick. It's Matthew 5.33-37. through 37. Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more that, than this comes from evil. So, this is, this is the text that Anabaptists would go back to. This is the text that Anabaptists would use to say, then I'm out. I don't need to take an oath. I don't need to perform a vow. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Deuteronomy 6.13, going back, Israel was instructed to swear by God's name. And from this verse, there is no one greater than God when he swears by. 
In this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't condemning the use of oaths and vows here, for later on, as we read, as we had read earlier, he himself took an oath before the high priest. What Jesus is getting at here in, in Matthew 5 is the Pharisaical misuse of oaths, where it became common practice to swear back in those days. That anything lesser than God, they would basically take anything that was lesser than God to swear by, so that they sounded like they were being pious, they sounded like they were trying to be serious, but there was no, they weren't bound by the law. God's law and, and the, what was binding was using his name. And so they would get around that by saying, I'm going to swear by the throne, I'm going to swear by my head or something else. But Jesus is getting, around, is getting away from that. He's wanting, he's wanting his believers to see that that is fri- a frivolous use of, of, of an oath. So according to the law, um, sorry, so they would, they would do this, uh, but Jesus speaks against this. And we should simply uh, be truthful in everything that we speak. That's his point in this. His point is that in anything that we do, we should be speaking simply, simple truth. But he's not condemning the use of oaths or vows here. All right. So that was oaths. Uh, paragraph 5 deals with, with vows. And not to say that it's lesser than oaths. Because it just gets one paragraph. Uh, we do see, like in the Westminster and the Savoy, these are treated in different paragraphs uh, for vows. But basically, everything that applies to oaths should apply to vows in the, same, in the exact same way. Um, but let's look at some scriptural examples uh, of vows. Would someone, somebody read Psalm 66, verses 12 through 13? Thank you. 76, verse 11. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. And then Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Thank you, guys. Can you guys think of any other vows from Scripture? The one that the guy said, whoever comes out of my house, I'll kill it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the daughter of him. Yeah. What about some more recent ones from our sermon series? Yep, and Jonathan did. <laughs> yep. Hey, Hannah, in the first chapter, right? She made a vow. Her firstborn would be dedicated to the Lord. Uh, and then even uh, Paul was under a vow in Acts 18, and James and some of the other men among the elders in Jerusalem in Acts 21. So as I mentioned, the 1689 authors, they likely felt that vows... Though they are different in definition, hold the same sort of reverence as oaths and thus should be handled in the same way. So therefore, they didn't feel that the, there was a need to expound any further on some of these points made for oaths. But they did want, they and, and, the, and the Westminster Confession as well, did speak, up, uh, speak out against Catholic vows. 
So there was a word against Catholic vows. So remember in the age in which these confessions were written, the Catholic Church was, uh, had much sway and influence, and the Reformers were fighting against it. Here in the same way the Westminster and Savoy do, the 1689 takes aim at the Catholic vows of abstinence, poverty, and other monastic vows like silence that Christians should avoid for, any, for they are superstitious and sinful. Would somebody read 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4? Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Okay. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe, believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving, or is made holy by the word of God's prayer. Thanks, Mike. So we see here, Paul is very clear to Timothy that, uh, that they should not forbid marriage and, abs- and require abstinence from foods and other things that God has made. And that's what we see here in, in these vows that uh, Catholic priests make, or Catholic uh, monks and nuns, uh, do is that they are forbidding things that God has said is good, and, and clearly in Scripture they should not be doing. So additionally, as a confession implies, we should not bind ourselves to a vow that cannot be reasonably carried out, such as when, Jews, when the Jews vowed to kill Paul in Acts, in Acts 12, as if they were the arbiters of death. The, the Jews there had said that they would kill Paul, uh, and they would not rest, and they would not break their vow until uh, they had killed him, as if they had the the control over whether or not Paul lived or died. So looking at oaths and vows, our application, you know, uh, uh, one of the things is, our, is kingdom speech. So Joel had preached a few years ago, I think back in 2017, through the Sermon on the Mount. And his, his uh, sermon on this topic was called Kingdom Speech. And in it, he was basically ex- encouraging all of us through this passage that anything that we do, anything that we say, anything, any use of our mouth, our actions should all be in truth. They, our yes is a yes and our no is a no. So, and our lives should be colored by that. And so we should be looking to see and honor God in everything that we say or do. Secondly, is a thoughtful living and use of our tongue. So we as Christians are to be careful about how we think and speak about God himself. Instituting an oath or a vow is a weighty measure, a weighty matter, because we are calling upon the Lord as our witness. Doing so, as we said before, is an act of worship, and as ones who should obey the word of God, we will want to carefully consider the lawful use of God's name in our lives. So, oaths and vows, lawful oaths and vows. Now that we've actually considered it a little bit more than maybe some of us have in, in the past and, and everything, and does anybody have any questions or further thoughts on it? Yeah. What would the Anabaptist rebuttal be? Good question. I don't. I don't know. I don't know myself. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. See what they say because I'm sure that's come up, and I'm sure they've had a rebuttal to it. 
find oath and vow? They said that an oath is more a declaration of truth and a vow is a promise. But um, it also said that the writer of Hebrews describes the most basic function of an oath as a holy promise. Mm-hmm. So are they both promises then? <laughs> I think, I mean, it, we're getting kind of into, I mean, they, they definitely overlay, right? There, there's a lot of... Um, Interplay in between the two of them. There's a lot of similarities, and that's why, like the 1689, did not think it was it was necessary to have multiple paragraphs on this, right? So, in a sense, yes. Uh, but the, the main the main thing being that vows are are promises to action, and that these are before God alone. Uh, oaths are between God and men, calling God as our witness. Uh, but that action part is really kind of the key thing for that for vows. Any other questions? All right. Well, let me close in prayer, and we'll be done a little bit early. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, and uh, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be able to gather together to go through uh, this next uh, chapter here in the 1689 on oaths and vows and the lawful use of them. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who guard our tongue. Father, your word uh, is very clear that our tongue is one that can start a a forest of fire or uh, be a a blessing. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to be ones who mind our tongue. And that that comes, Lord, from a changed heart. For out of the the heart, the mouth speaks. Father, may you help us all in in our walks, in our lives with you, that we would be ones who are transformed by the gospel, that we would love Christ most of all, and in so that then... Our desire would be to honor you, to uh, glorify you, and to to worship you. When we call upon your name in a lawful way, that we would be very considerate of that. We'd be very thoughtful of that. And that, Father, we would be people who are of of the truth and kingdom speech, Lord. Father, we thank you so much uh, that you work in our lives and you transform uh, these worm tongues that we have to be ones that can be blessings and, and speak truth. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us today in that to go and worship you, for you are the one who has uh, made a way that we can be uh, able to take a lawful oath or vow and to bring you honor and glory through that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.